Hey everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of the Alcocast. I'm Jamie Chun, the copy editor for the Alcolade. Today we have a very special guest, Lindsay Lumakis. She's the founder of the Rescue and Sanctuary One Love, where she contributes to providing homes for animals in need and boosting adoption and fostering in the community. Thank you so much for joining us on the Acocast. Um, to begin with, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Lindsay Lumakis, and I'm um, one of the founders of One Love Animal Rescue. Um, I originally went to school for business administration, and I still work full time um, in my family's business as a finance manager. Um, and I really do <laughs> the rescue on my my free time, <laughs> but it really is my passion. So me and my husband started the rescue um, officially in 2019, and it's really been our entire lives since then. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you today. Um, going back to your organization, could you introduce what exactly One Love does? Yes, so we are a nonprofit animal rescue and sanctuary, um, which means we take in animals who are homeless. Um, a lot of them have medical or behavioral issues. Um, and for the most part, we try to work with them to rehabilitate and rehome them. Um, there are some that live here permanently. So there's kind of two facets to what we do. One is obviously getting animals into their forever homes. Um, and the other is to, you know, keep more of the exotic animals um, that don't have as much um, rehomeability, um, that have more conservation value. And just before um, COVID started, <laughs> we had started doing an educational program where we were going out to schools and churches and bringing some of our sanctuary animals um, out to teach people about them. So like our iguana, some of our exotic parrots, um, some of our tortoises, just to teach people about their in environment in the wild. Um, but that program is not quite as far off the ground as, as our rescue is. Yeah, um, like you mentioned, I know you have a rescue and a sanctuary as part of your organization. Could you um, explain how those two work together? Yes, absolutely. So um, the rescue has a lot of moving parts. <laughs> you know, everything is urgent with the rescue. You know, you you hear about an animal that's either on the euthanasia list at a local shelter or someone calls you because it got hit by a car or there's something urgent. So you got to drop what you're doing, get yourself um, situated, get the animal the attention it needs immediately, and then you know go through the process, getting it its vet care, getting it spayed and neutered, getting it vaccinated, posting it on the website, taking it to adoption events, driving it all over. <laughs> Half the time, I think I'm just a glorified Uber driver um, <laughs> for animals. <laughs> Um, but getting them with the ultimate goal of getting them into their homes. There's a lot of moving pieces to the rescue and it seems like it moves a lot faster. Whereas the sanctuary, it's more playing the long game. So we do take them in. Um, sometimes they're sanctuary for medical or behavioral reasons. So we have a couple um, that we've deemed unadoptable because we don't think that they would be safe in a traditional home environment, either for themselves or the people. But for the most part, the sanctuary deals more with um, like exotic species that we don't breed them ourselves, but we are keeping them um, in the hopes of giving them to a reputable conservation facility um, that does have a breeding program. Um, and that's where, you know, on the one hand, we're advocating for please pay and neuter your cats and dogs. There's too many of them. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's, you know, endangered species that we do want to preserve. So um, we kind of have two different facets and we have to kind of keep our, our different hats on at different times. <laughs> Um, but really had the, the division of labor. I'm really the lead of the rescue component and my husband, David, who also co-founded the rescue, he's more primary on the sanctuary. So we both know how to do everything, but that's kind of how we've broken down the division of labor. 
Yeah, uh, I think a lot of us tend to group sanctuary and shelter together. So it's so amazing that you have both to support the different animals' needs. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was your inspiration in starting One Love? So um, I've always loved animals. Both me and, and David have always really loved animals, but I never thought I'd be more than just a pet owner. Um, but I, um, when I had just moved out, I had just started college, my mom found a tiny little newborn kitten um, and she called me and was like, I don't know what to do with it. Can you help? So I said, absolutely. So I wasn't supposed to have kittens in my apartment at the time, but I did and I kept it and I bottle fed it and I was intending to adopt it out and I never did. Um, but I got really attached to that kitten and eventually he ended up passing away sort of tragically. And I, at that time was like, I don't think I can ever look at another animal. Um, I just, you know, I'm not qualified to be a pet owner. I clearly failed this one. <laughs> um, about three months later, after I made that decision, um, I walked out of my, my day job and there was a, a mom with a litter, litter of newborn baby kittens. And I wasn't gonna just leave them there. They were sitting right in the parking lot. <laughs> so I picked them up and I said, I'm gonna find a rescue for them. I called around, I spent the next three days calling probably 50 different rescues and not one of them would say yes. They all had a different excuse. We're too full or we don't take black cats or, you know, they're, we, they have to be eight weeks old. Everybody had a reason. <laughs> and so they all said, call the shelter. So I called the local county shelter um, and they said, well, yes, we can take them, but just so you know, we're really full. And so there's a high likelihood that they'll be euthanized. And so of course, I'm not gonna let that happen. So that was my first <laughs> official, I guess I'm gonna do it on my own, right? So I, I kept them, I fostered them, I found them homes. This was all before we officially had how to rescue. Um, and after we did that once or twice, people kept calling us, hey, I found this animal, can you help? And we decided to just make it official because I thought, you know, there's gotta be more resources. There's gotta be a better way. Um, you know, I think a lot more people would foster um, or be involved in rescues if we took some of the obstacles away. Um, especially like, like money. I mean, a lot of people would love to foster an animal and they have the time, but they just can't afford all the supplies. So, you know, if we can find a way or find an avenue to get donations, to be able to support them financially, make adoption kits, a lot more people are getting involved. And so we kind of had a different vision um, for how we wanted to, to run the rescue, to be able to say yes, when people like me called <laughs> asking <Yeah>. for help. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's so awesome that you're able to take that kind of experience and passion to establish such an amazing organization like One Love. So I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm also curious about what's the day-to-day -day life like as the founder of One Love? Yes, it's crazy. Every day looks a little bit different. You wake up in the morning with a plan and it almost never goes to plan. <laughs> but um, both me and David do have full-time jobs as well. Um, so it's a lot of juggling, a lot of balance. Luckily, our jobs are very flexible. So we can kind of, you know, I can do my, my work at midnight if the rescue needs me to be at a vet appointment during the day. So that's been really rewarding, but it is a lot. Um, and I wouldn't do it if it wasn't my passion because it's 90% hard work physically and emotionally. <laughs> and everyone thinks it's 10%, it's playing with cute animals and, you know, I'm having fun all day and that's 10% of what you actually get to do. But I will say that 10% is so rewarding. It makes the 90% of the really hard stuff worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also a really interesting aspect of your organization is that you've implemented the sanctuary and rescue into your actual home. Um, how did this come, how did this idea come about and help your rescue grow? 
So we learned by trial and error along the way. Um, you know, we thought we would just be foster based and we would get a really great team of fosters and not have to have a physical location. And so that didn't really work out because we found that people have lives and things come up and fosters have to give animals back or you adopt an animal out. And for some reason it doesn't work out, they have to come back. So we were trying to find a way to balance that and always have kind of an open area where we can have space for emergencies. Um, and so that's why we created kind of a space that's not open to the public per se, but to where we always have the room to say yes, to take back our animals. Um, and the animals need constant care. So we were originally looking at um, some potential retail spaces where people could come and see more like a traditional like pet store, pet rescue. Um, but we're not there all the time <laughs> and emergencies happen in the middle of the night. I have two bottle babies right now that I have to wake up every three hours to feed. Um, I don't want to have to drive somewhere to do that. <laughs> so it's a lot easier when they're, they're in your home. And it definitely, um, takes a lot of work to kind of keep that separation between your personal life and what you're putting into the rescue. But I really think it's necessary. Um, at least for a rescue our size where we don't have full-time 24 hour employees, we've just got volunteers and <laughs> If the volunteers don't show up, it falls on me and David. So kind of having it in our home seemed like the, the best solution. So we did, um, when we decided to, you know, kind of grow the rescue, we did buy a bigger home um, with enough land to support what we wanted to do. Yeah, I could definitely imagine that. And also just how when I first went there to do the orientation and tour myself, I remember my friends and I just looked at each other and we were just so surprised and really just amazed at how you were able to transform your backyard into these various homes for all the animals. So yeah, like the purposes that you mentioned, but also the way you're able to design it was so spacious and really perfect for the animals to spend their time before they move on to their next home. Um, but you also, I, I assume that you also may have gone through some challenges like money and even like the construction process or neighbors. Um, could you talk about how you're able to overcome that? Yeah, we put a lot of thought into the design and the layout beforehand. And luckily we um, kind of stumbled on this place by accident before we, we bought the place we're in now. We had actually bought a plot of land in La Habra Heights that we were planning to build on. Um, and we actually knew the people who were moving out of this, this house, they had donated some stuff to the rescue and we had come to pick it up. And, um, we looked around and we're like, this is exactly what we're trying to build because they happen to have quite a few of the buildings like the bird barn and a couple of the, the cat barns, um, already here that they were using for woodworking. So obviously we had to do a lot. We had to insulate them and put ACs and make them animal ready. But a lot of the structures were already here and we just kind of repurposed them. So it was, it was incredible. <laughs> so that helped a lot. Um, getting us started and so we kind of reorganized and shifted plans and you know at that time too we were able to kind of meet the neighbors and talk to them before purchasing you know just to make sure that they would be okay and luckily it's a really animal friendly neighborhood um, <laughs> it's so funny I've never lived anywhere or known anyone in you know the Orange County area that's had pigs right but both our neighbors on both sides of us have pigs <laughs> So it's like, it worked out perfectly. Um, so that everyone is really understanding. They, the neighbors really appreciate, you know, what we're doing too. And um, so it's, it was really nice to have a warm welcome that way. Yeah, that's so interesting. I never knew that when I went to volunteer. Um, but moving on to our next question, I know that you have such a diverse group of animals. So how have you been able to grow your rescue to include such diversity? Yes, so that evolved sort of organically. Um, we started out really just doing cats and then we kept getting people saying, hey, I can't find anyone who can take a reptile. I can't find anyone who can take a chinchilla. 
And so we learned, you know, we were like, well, I don't want to say no, um, but we also aren't going to take them in if we're not prepared. So we would say, give us some time and we'd do some research and we would get a, you know, appropriate space set up for them. Um, so I can't say we're experts on everything, but we will do our best and make it work. And you may have noticed we're constantly shifting something that one day had a tortoise in it. The next day it's going to have a rabbit in it. And today it's got two pigs in it. So it just depends on the day and all animals require a little bit different, but we've set it up to be really customizable depending on what we are getting in. Um, and that's just because, you know, dogs, everyone thinks of dogs when they think of rescue and don't get me wrong. There's so many dogs that need help, um, but there's less resources out there for other types of animals. And so we've tried to kind of be that resource, at least for the Orange County area, to where we can provide support for, for other animals. You know, we're not going to do lions and tigers, but <laughs> anything that's within our, our purview to help, we're going to try. Yeah, I totally agree, because I think a lot of us expect to see more of the common pets, like cats and dogs, but it's so great that you include the other animals as well. Um, I also know that you have very creative ways to help find animals a loving home, like meet and greets. Could you talk about how that has played a part in your mission and outreach and how other organizations can also use these method, uh, methods to help their cause as well? Yes, Um Meet and greets have been huge, um, especially with COVID. Um, you know, we used to do adoption events where we would take animals actually to a place um, and we'd put them in crates and people would come see them, kind of like what you might see at Petco or PetSmart, but that really wasn't working well. Um, they have its place, but the animals, especially because we do so many cats, they're terrified. <laughs> you know, you put them in a crate and cats don't like moving, they don't like change. And so half the time they're just hiding under a blanket and you're not really get to, getting to see them. Um, in their environment. So doing meet and greets where, you know, you're, they're getting to interact one-on-one, -on -one, they're in a more comfortable home environment really helps them kind of come out of their shell and you can see the true personality of the animal that you're working with. We also do what we call adoption trials to where you can keep them with you without a, a permanent commitment because we want to make sure it's a good fit. And so, um, you know, a lot of times we say the animal chooses you more than you choose the animal. <laughs> um, so sometimes that's a way to make sure it's going to be a good fit for everybody too. Um, and then we also, of course, post on social media. We post on, you know, Pet Finder, Adopt a Pet, and a lot of online sources, um, which have been a lot bigger since COVID. Those have been our biggest sources of um, people interested in animals. But a lot comes from word of mouth too. Um, so it's been kind of going all over. But we definitely have had to adapt since since COVID changed everything. <laughs> Yeah, I think those are definitely very useful ways for everyone to use. Um, and I also wanted to ask, you have a team of people you work with and very dedicated volunteers helping out at the organization. How are you able to meet these people and grow your organization with them? Yeah, so a lot comes from word of mouth. You know, people that know us or know someone adopted from us and they want to be able to help. Um, but we also have used a couple websites. There's a really good one called Volunteer Match where you kind of post about the opportunity and then people will reach out if they're interested. That's really helped connect us with a lot, a lot of people um, who've been interested in helping. And we, we kind of said when we started this that we can't do it just by ourselves. Um, and so we've been so grateful to have the volunteers because when we, we first started here, we had all the space and maybe 10% of the animals because we want to make sure we're not in a position where we can't physically care for them all. <laughs> but now that we've got some really routine volunteers, it's been a lot easier for us to say yes to more animals coming in and moving through. Yeah, um, as a volunteer myself, I know that I get very motivated and excited to come again next time when working with others who are equally passionate. Um, but I also know that especially during the pandemic when adoption rates have constantly been fluctuating, I was wondering how you were, how you were able to combat that? 
So COVID has been crazy. Um, you know, it, in the beginning, we literally ran out of animals. It was the weirdest thing. And it was such a nice, refreshing feeling to say like, there's actually no animals that need help right now. Um, but it was short-lived. And so a few months later, we started getting quite a few more back. And I think a lot of people weren't necessarily prepared. Um, but it did kind of give us um, some tips on how to better change our system so that we can prepare them and make sure that they know what they're getting into and they're not rushing into the situation. So we've kind of modified our, our education a little bit. We're still offering, you know, virtual visits, virtual meet and greets, you know, all, all of that good stuff. Um, the one thing COVID has impacted though is we're getting a lot more requests from the public to take in animals because the county shelters, a lot of them are still closed down to the public, um, at least for intakes and they don't necessarily have the outreach programs that they used to have. So we're working on trying to infill that a little bit. Um, you know, I, I love county shelters. <laughs> I don't love that they euthanize animals, but the shelters are not the problem. It's the community and people not spaying you during their pets. So it's not the shelter's fault they're put in that position. Um, but it is a little difficult on the rescues that didn't used to have to kind of take that public interaction <laughs> that now everyone's calling, well, I called the shelter and they said, I can't drop them off there. And so now we're in the position of like, that's usually if we are full, you know, we have to direct them to the shelters, but now we're in the position of, okay, let me figure out another way. Let me try to educate them on, you know, if you can't take them somewhere, how can you care for them where they are? You know, and how can, what are, what other resources can we offer? Because we can't say yes to everyone as much as we'd like to, but we have to respect our own limits as a rescue too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, speaking of that, there are so many ways as people and customs that we can address to help the animal community. But what do you think are some of the most pressing issues you see right now? I would say, I mean, that's a big one. Um, I really would, you know, help petition our county boards to open the shelters again. Um, I mean, they're technically open, but they have a lot of COVID protocols. So you can't just walk in and go see the dogs or the cats the way you used to. Um, and that really does impact a lot of people um, because a lot of people want to go through and make a connection. And now all you can do is see them online. So that's a big way. Another way is, you know, obviously foster, volunteer, donate support. If you can't do any of those, you know, network and just spread the word and try to share education. Um, you know, I read a statistic the other day that really shocked me um, in California there is a seven to one ratio of homeless pets to people, which means for there not to be a homeless pet problem, every person, including kids, would need to have seven animals. And that means for a family of four, that's 28 animals in the house. That's way too many for, for people to handle. Um, and so, you know, the core of the issue is like, I think once you put it in that context, people understand, um, you know, the importance of really having a community focus on the overpopulation of dogs and cats. Obviously, there's a completely different, you know, spiel on some of the other more exotic animals that we take care of, um, <laughs> where I focus more on like environmental conservation because cutting down the rainforest is killing, <laughs> killing the tortoises. But that's a story for a different day, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, getting more specific to One Love, your organization focuses on helping household companions, which I think is great because people can easily be among them, whereas wildlife animals are less reachable. So could you talk about how that has been making an impact? Yeah, so I mean, that's where when we started the rescue, even though we wanted to be kind of all breeds and multi-species, we had to have some limits to say, I can't help the possums and the squirrels and the raccoons, even though I want to, right? <laughs> but that's just not gonna be our, our thing to do. Um, but I think 
having a focus on household companions helps people connect with the animals a little bit more. And when you say like, hey, that could be my cat or that could be my dog, um, you have a little bit better connection. It helps people care a little bit more because um, it puts it into context for them. And, and also it helps us know that we can have a constantly rotating door of, you know, if we're just a sanctuary, there's a limited number of animals that we can help. If we're able to move them on and pass them on to other good people who care and want to make them their forever family, we can have a broader impact um, on the animals that we do serve. Mm -hmm. And going further, what are your hopes and dreams for One Love? So, you know, we've got a lot of hopes <laughs> right now. We're just trying to get our, our head around, you know, the, the animals that we have, but um, long-term, I would like for it to kind of outlive me and David, who really were the drivers of this. And, um, you know, we, we work full-time so that we can support the rescue. We do get a lot of donations um, and we do get, <laughs> sorry, you can see the cats behind me. <laughs> we do have support from, from other places, but for the most part, it's like, we still have to have our full-time jobs to support this. So we'd like to get to a point where we can make this our full-time job and also have it outlive us. So um, have other people on our board and other people who care enough to make this their full-time passion and um, have it live on beyond us, um, you know, kind of expanding our educational reach. And, you know, I, I love best friends and what they've done with their organization. And I don't necessarily want to compete with them because there's no competition in this in this space, we're all so needed and we're all working towards the same goals. Um, but I really do value, you know, kind of the diversity of their programs and how much they've done for their community. So definitely something like that would be what we're aspiring towards. Yeah, that's so amazing. And I love your passion toward this mission. And I also think it's great that you provide an opportunity to for people to easily help out. So as a last thing, could you say a couple of words to students and the younger generation to inspire them to contribute to the animal community? So I never thought of myself as an inspirational speaker, but you know, the, the quote that we have on our website, um, it's not my quote, I can't take responsibility for it, but um, it says changing or saving the life of one animal won't change the world, but for that one animal, the world will change forever. And that's kind of our mantra because sometimes, you know, you can feel so bad about all the animals that you can't help and everything in the world and that community that you can't solve. Um, but being able to make the impact that we do make one animal at a time is just so rewarding. Um, and even, like I said, if you can't help all the animals like we do, just doing it in your own little way is so meaningful. Um, you know, whether it's networking, just spreading the word on social media, um, you know, we, we love social media and we have wanted to have like a YouTube or a TikTok, but we just don't have the time, you know, we're spending so much time between our day jobs to fund the rescue and then taking care of the animals and moving them all around. That, that fun stuff kind of comes last, <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that really does help and it helps people connect with the animals and makes them care about them. When you see somebody or an animal that you really connect with, all of a sudden you care a little bit more. Um, and so just you know, participating and getting involved in local rescues or with the shelter um, and just being more aware. You know, I hear so many times people say, oh, I don't want to neuter my dog because I, I don't want to take his manhood away or his personality is going to change. Like <laughs> just trying to talk to people about what that means. And, you know, this one unneutered animal can be responsible for hundreds of homeless animals and um, just trying to do our part to provide education. If, if you don't wanna get involved hands-on, but of course there's opportunities for that too. You can always come, come play with the animals. <laughs> Yeah, I love that advice. So thank you so much, Lindsay, for taking the time to talk with us about the importance of animal rescues and sanctuaries that give a caring human presence and shelter to animals. 